Grace and peace, saints. Hope everybody is well this morning. Um, before I forget, I want to remind everyone um, to continue praying for Donnie and Mackenzie. Um, their trip has been amazing but eventful, and I'll leave it at that. So if you guys would continue uh, to, to pray for them while they are in Uganda, um, that all the travel issues would get worked out and that the opportunities presented by extending their stay a little bit um, would be glorifying to our God and King. Um, before I get started, I also want to say that I haven't preached since October of last year. So, y'all buckle up. <laughs> I, uh, I, I do want to say a word about that. I know that some, some people uh, missed the announcement of where I went for uh, six months. I mean, I was still here, uh, but I, uh, the, the, there was a lot of stuff going on uh, in my family with uh, job situations and things like that, and the elders graciously allowed me to step away from my uh, eldering responsibilities for a little bit to go on a sabbatical, uh, which was refreshing and was really good. And, uh, but I got to say, I, I am very excited um, to be back in the pulpit this morning. Um, so if you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, please take it um, to Psalm uh, 124. Psalm 124. Uh, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you should know that we are going in sequential order through the Psalms of Ascent. So most of you are probably already there. So please hear the words of the true and living God from Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here, to be your people this morning. God, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would magnify the Lord Jesus, who he is and what he has done this morning. That God, though we have come into this building um, carrying the weight of this past week, that Father, I pray your mercy and your grace would meet us through the gathering here of your people and through your word preached. Father, I pray that we would find ourselves being more, being conformed more into your image. God, we need you. And so, Lord, for those in this room who are not convinced of that yet, God, I pray that you would press into their hearts and minds how badly they need you. Father, be with your word preached this morning. May it go forth in power. May it have its intended effect both in saint uh, and in the lost. So, Father, would we rejoice? Would we sing? God, we're going through your songbook. Father, would you help us to, to want to sing? Would you help us to reflect on what we sing? But God, I pray that if, if we find ourselves in this room today struggling to open our mouths in praise, that God, you would convict us. God, that you would help us to ask the question, do I even know this salvation I claim to know because I can't open my mouth to sing. So Father, help us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Psalms of Ascent extend from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. 
Uh, these psalms are associated with what literally translates on going up, right? You know, ascending. It's not, it's not hard, right? But where are they going? Where are they ascending to? As with many of the psalms of ascent, there is not clarity on lots of specifics. We do know, however, they are journeying to Jerusalem. So when are they journeying? Well, that's not for certain either. Some commentaries say that this could either be the return of exiles from Babylon in the 6th century, but more likely the Psalms of Ascent are referring to the annual journey of the Israelites for their great festivals. Festivals like Passover, the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm inclined to believe that because of the harvesting imagery in many of these Psalms, that, they, that we get an indication that these songs were sung as they journeyed for the specific feast of the Feast of Tabernacles. So, in order to get to Jerusalem, many Israelites had to walk hundreds of miles, and the Psalms of Ascent were songs they sang as they journeyed. So we must not be tempted to read into their journey with our modern ears that this was something that someone could just jump in the minivan, drive a few hours up the road, and we're in Jerusalem. For many, this was a long journey. They had to pass through valleys, cliffs. They had to walk through wilderness. They had to finally up the hill into Jerusalem. So we have to ask, why would they sing? Why are they singing? You see, this is something I think we have lost in modern, well, not all of us, but, but some of this has been lost in some of modern Christianity. For many, we tend to devalue public singing. We tend to devalue it, especially our men. Our men don't sing. Don't lie to me. I turn around and watch you. We don't sing, and um, it's in my heart. You don't shout for joy. Sh shouting implies your lips and your tongue to move. And this side note, okay, I'm, I, don't, I don't need to go too far into this. Our men set the climate for the church. Okay, so if our men aren't singing, our kids aren't going to sing. We set the climate. So for the Israelites, the singing was a way to rehearse what God has done. Why? Because we, we forget. They're singing their worship since it was grounded in the acts of God in history. They're singing, listen, reoriented them in the present around the one true God. Because singing brings you back. Singing brings you back to who you are, to who God is, and why it matters. I would say this is not a, a message on music per se, but just think about how powerful music is in general. Both music in the church and both music outside the church. It shapes. It informs. And I'll keep saying this word. It reorients. I believe it's because God is a singing God and is woven into the fabric of reality, the beauty of music. Excuse me. And is woven into the fabric of reality. And beauty in music is one of the ways... That beauty is expressed. We na you, you, you've been to concerts, or you've seen their hands are raised, their eyes are closed. I mean, it looks like a worship service. Because we're made to worship. We're made to respond to music in a certain way. It's because God has made us that way. So they're singing reoriented them. I'm going to do a brief where we've been, going to touch on some of the other psalms of ascent we've already done. But listen, they're singing reoriented them. Their songs brought them back. Experiencing pain and suffering? Psalm 120, verse 1. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. They're singing this, okay? Psalm 123, uh, verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, for you are enthroned in the heavens. If you're experiencing pain and suffering, you need to sing that. 
Are you wondering if God can handle your life? Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4. He will not let your foot be moved, because he who keeps you will, does not slumber. Behold, he keeps Israel. He who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. He can handle your life. He never checks out. Psalm 121, verses 5 and 7. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. There's, again, they're singing this. It doesn't sound as pretty in English because it wasn't written for us to sing like that. But they're singing these things. Are you wondering where your life is heading? Sing Psalm 122. Verses 1 and 2, he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates to Jerusalem. So do you see it? Do you see how singing is meant to bring us back? This is why singing on a Sunday morning is so important. Because in God's grace, he's given us Sunday mornings to be that day by which we gather with the church to be, there's that word again, reoriented back to the worship of our Savior. So that. We can be propelled back out into our homes, our streets, our workplaces for his purposes. Worship is reorienting. It's bringing us back to what matters most. Because what you give the most weight to in your life will determine your trajectory. And the Bible is incredibly clear. That if we are made by God and for God, then therefore our lives are only meant to make sense in light of of him. So this morning, we pick up in Psalm 124 as we will be reminded that our help comes from the Lord. This morning, we will be reminded God preserves his people. And if there's ever a day and time when we need to be reminded of this, it's right now. I believe that we are heading into an era of cultural turmoil, even worse than what we've been experiencing so far. We will be tempted to look elsewhere for help. We will be tempted to cave on our Christian convictions. We will be tempted to innovate and find new ways to deal with the cultural pressures, ones that don't give honor to Jesus. May we find ourselves being brought back to the one who cuts through the noise, to the one who provides an anchor when it seems like everyone else in the broader culture is literally, literally denying reality. May we find ourselves being reoriented back to the one who cuts through those cultural currents and leads us to walk on dry land. May we find ourselves saying, yes, the Lord is our help, and I believe he will preserve his church. The Lord will preserve his people. Psalm 124. If you look in your Bible, it will say that this is a song of David. If it is David's, it probably is referring to an earlier uh, part of his reign as he reflects on his conflicts with the Philistines. The other way to look at our psalm this morning is that the song may well have been written after the exile as God's people rejoice in his protection, as God's people rejoice in his preservation. I tend to lean more towards the second understanding mainly because as we read this psalm, we see that the ideas are expressed in communal phrases. Like, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us our help is in the name of the lord the psalm does not give us the details that led to their praise we are not certain what prompted their thanksgiving so how are we to take this psalm 
Well, I would say we have a pretty good idea of what they could be celebrating because the Bible has written down most of their history for us to know what the Israelites went through. But I believe that we are to take this psalm as a triumphant declaration of praise as we experience God's preservation and deliverance. If we look at church history, we can see this psalm pops up all over the place in writings where those who have gone before us are celebrating. And they're using this psalm to celebrate with. So therefore, that's what we will do this morning. We will use this psalm to celebrate. So point number one, our psalmist begins with a what-if statement, two what-if statements. Verses one and two, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us. Here we have the worship leader calling upon the people of Israel, join me. Join me as I sing. And here in verses 1 and 2, we see the word if used twice. Now, we must understand this to be hypothetical because we know that God does not break his covenant, which means we know that he does not abandon his people, even though circumstances may make us feel otherwise. Perhaps a better translation would be, except that the Lord had not been on our side, or unless the Lord had not been on our side. The psalmist is saying, if the Lord had not been on our side, could you have imagined our predicament? It was pretty bad. But could you imagine what it would have looked like to have gone through everything we would have gone through without him? Let's run with this. Now, now I know all of us in here are, are not under any suspicion that just because one is a Christian, everything in life is just easy and painless. If you do believe that, you are believing a lie. But I want us to think about difficulties and, and pain and, and maybe the loss that many, probably most of us have experienced. I want you to imagine, let's, let's jump into the, to the psalm and let's ponder some what ifs. What if all of those things you would have gone through, what, it would, what would it have been like if you would have gone through all those things without the Lord? Think about your pain Think about your suffering. Think about difficulties. And just imagine, you can say those were really hard, but could you have imagined how much harder it would have been if you were an atheist? We'll talk about that more in a second. Essentially, I'm asking you to imagine painful situations and circumstances, but imagine them absent of hope. Imagine painful and difficult circumstances, but imagine them without hope. Let's keep going. Let's, let's run that into our second verse, or our second point. So the psalmist begins with a what if. Now he describes the what if. So it's the what if described. He, he takes this idea and he goes with it with some hypotheticals. Verses 3 and 5. So, if the Lord had not been on our side, verse 3, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. When the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. So the psalmist is now going to illustrate these deliverances. I want to also remind us that these are not hypothetical, really. The psalmist is not celebrating hypothetical deliverances. Okay, y'all get it, right? They weren't destroyed because the Lord was with them in these things. He's not, they're not celebrating some, some like, uh, you know, could you imagine what it would have been like if the Lord would have delivered us? No, it, it, they are celebrating real salvation in real history. This is not allegory. 
When we read of David praising God for saving him from wicked men, he's not referring to some internal dialogue with himself where he's fighting bad thoughts. And that's funny to us because we're used to a certain kind of preaching. That's the stuff that passes as preaching the Bible. They want to they, they make everything spiritual, everything allegory, everything is not real space-time, flesh and blood things because they can't fathom God actually intervening in history and doing something. No, he's, he's praising God for saving him from wicked men because real people are trying to kill him. We live in a day and age where people want to soften things in the Bible. We can't. We have to let the Bible speak. Because, listen, because when your world falls apart, I don't need your good thoughts. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, I get the gesture, and I'm not rude when someone says it, but, but you know, I overthink everything. I'm like, your thoughts? That's not do. No, I... We don't need good thoughts. We don't need to be saved from hypothetical situations by an ultimately hypothetical God. We need to be saved through our trials by a real and merciful God that actually cares and loves his people. So let's imagine with the psalmist, what if the Lord had not been on their side? He says, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. The first image in verse 3 gives us a picture into their enemies desiring complete destruction of their nation. Now we know that if we've read our Old Testament, it seems like everybody's trying to destroy Israel. And if it would have not have been for the Lord, they would have been utterly wiped out. They said that our enemies would have swallowed us up alive. Language of not a small skirmish, a few people died. It's not a language of a, a building knocked over. No, it's, it's utter destruction. It's complete destruction. Jeremiah 51, 34, the prophet describes Nebuchadnezzar as swallowing him like a monster. The second image we see in verses 4 and 5 is describing floods, sudden floods that are very common in the Near East. They said that the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us. In Israel, dry stream beds can become dangerous during heavy rains. Both of these images are painting for us a picture of complete destruction if the Lord had not preserved his people. Other nations would have destroyed them, and they were like, even nature would have destroyed us. Natural disasters would have completely wiped us out, but the Lord preserved his people. I don't think I have to say this, but do you notice how God-centric this is? This is not mustering up strength and defending yourselves, building higher walls, building retaining walls, but you know, whatever it is, or you know, getting a bigger army. This is, this is not mustering up your strength to defend yourself sort of talk. This is a man completely dependent upon God. If the Lord had not been on our side, it does not say if I had more money, then this would be okay. It does not say that if I went to the gym more and was super strong, then we would have been okay. It does not say if I had a really big sword, I could slay the monster that was trying to eat us, and then we would be okay. It does not say if I was a really good swimmer, then I could survive that flood. No, it says that if the Lord had not been on our side, these things would have utterly destroyed us. There's no human rescue in picture here. There is no hope in chariots or armies. There is only hope in the Lord. So let's run with this a little bit further. Let's keep going. I really want to drive this home about how the Lord preserves his people. Let's fill in the blank here. 
If the Lord had not been on my side when I got the cancer diagnosis. If the Lord had not been on my side when I lost a child. If the Lord had not been on our side when I lost my job and I didn't know how I was going to take care of my family. If the Lord had not been on our side when our nation lost its collective mind. We know the history of the Israelites. We know everything that they went through. They were attacked. They were everything but destroyed at times. They were sent out into exile. The psalmist says, had it not been the Lord that was on our side when men rose up against us, or another way, when, when people attacked us, could you have imagined what it would have been like during those battles? During the cancer diagnosis, no hope. During the loss of a child, no hope. No light at the end of the tunnel, none of that. And many people would say, that you, you, just, you, just, you can't handle the, the, the intensities of life, so you need a crutch. Yes! Because I wasn't made to exist in this life absent of him. See, because their fundamental foundation for their worldview is God doesn't exist. You don't need him. You can survive on your own. But we were not made like that because every time we begin to try to figure stuff out, we screw it up. And God's not a crutch. He is my sovereign king that sustains me. Am I weak and needy? Yes. Yes, I am. All through the Old Testament, we know that God is with his people. He was for his people. He was their ally. He was their protector. He was their shield. He was their fortress. This, this is the Psalms full of this language. Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He is this for his people. Here's what you got to remember. He's not that for the entire world indiscriminately. God, he's just for the world. In one sense, yes, but in another sense, he's not like that because he's only like this for his people. I'll say it again, he is like, he's this for his people. He's our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He's that for his people, not for the entire world indiscriminately. God is covenanted with his people. And if you were in here and you are in Jesus, he is covenanted with you, bonded by the blood of his son. Therefore, big therefore, he is with you. He, not, he might not be with you in the ways that you think he should be. But that's not what you need. You don't need him to be with you in the ways you think he should be because he knows what you need. And I'm not saying that in a generic way. I can't answer all the questions of life difficulties, why this, why that. But again, I know he's with me. This is who our God is for his people. Let's take these examples that I mentioned above and pretend that we are atheists. Let's do some of our what ifs. So I got, the diag I got diagnosed with cancer. There are some of you in this room who have had this diagnosis. But for the rest of us, imagine the, the emptiness. Could you imagine the void you would feel? What comfort could you receive from another person? All they could say is, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. I hope you get better. But not as a Christian. I'm not saying you still don't struggle and, and, and with what that means and how that happens. But as, as God's covenant people, we can declaratively say, if it had not been the Lord that was on my side, this diagnosis would have absolutely brought me to ruin. And some of you 
got to that point to where you were ruined, and guess what the Lord did? Guess what he did? He proved that he preserved you because your faith did not fail. You got to the end of yourself, and he was there. The other example of a person losing their job and not being able to provide for their family, what would you say to them? Good luck? Hope you figure it out? You see, when you remove the God of the Bible from our circumstances, everything becomes empty and aimless. There is no hope. There is no ultimate purpose. At best, you have worthless, wishful thinking. Am I saying that becoming a Christian in your life will all of a sudden become easier? No problems? I hope that's abundantly clear that's not what I'm saying. Because the Christian does not exist in some parallel universe per se. We exist in reality. But we exist in God's reality, submitting to Jesus as Lord, who brings his rule and reign to bear on our current circumstances. We are not left to our own devices. We are not left to our strength. We have what the atheist does not have. We have an absolute interpreter of reality. Does this mean that we have answers to all of life's most pressing questions, even the most pressing question being, why God? No. We do not. But could you have imagined if the Lord had not been on our side what we would look like? Can you feel the weight of the psalmist declaring in, in verse 5 as he's motivating and moving his people to worship? No, we don't have all the answers to why we went through what we did, but could you have imagined what it would have been like if our God would have been Baal? If our God would have been Molech? No, no, no. no. Our God is the true God, the maker of heaven and earth. Hallelujah. And, and notice, he's, he's, he's fixing a crescendo here in a second in the psalm. So he begins with these almost kind of bad ideas, right? What if, what if God wouldn't have been there? What if God wouldn't have been there? And he's setting them up for, oh wait, but he was. Because when you begin to think about the bad news, the good news becomes really good news. And that's what we see him doing. So in, in point three, we see the deliverance celebrated. Verses six through eight. Let's just read it again. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us his prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So these hypotheticals are just that, hypotheticals. The anger of their enemies did not swallow them up alive. The floods that threatened to sweep them away did not go over them. They were not consumed. They were not cut off. Why? Because the Lord preserved them. All of these attacks were ultimate failures. Pondering the what-ifs in this situation set the stage for their songs of praise to erupt into thankfulness. It's like they were saying, this is what could have happened, but oh my goodness, do you know what really happened? What should be our response as we journey through life as we experience trials and pain and simultaneously as we experience joy and pleasure? You, see, you realize that the Christian worldview is the only worldview that can hold those things in tension, pain and suffering and joy and pleasure? What should be our response? It should be worship. The difficult times should push us into our God eventually. Notice I say eventually because I'm under no circumstance that every time or under any suspicion that when I go through something hard, I'm like, let's go. 
like I'm here, but let's, no, I'm, 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 any of you know me, I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. I get real depressed, and then you've got to give me some time, and the Lord moves me out of it. But the difficult times should push us into our God eventually, and the joy and pleasurable times should do the same. We praise God who sustains us through the difficult times while simultaneously also praising the same God who allows us to experience joy and pleasure. But the right response for the, Israel, for the Israelites was praise the Lord. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Again, who is receiving the praise? It's God. The psalmist is not saying that their God was one of many possibilities. But he and he alone was able to save them. God is our deliverer in which no human arm can resist and none else can rescue. So let's read this psalm with new covenant eyes. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us over to our sins or to the wrath of God. Romans 5 verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Israelites, they did nothing to, they did nothing to make God covenant with them. They didn't say, God, you need to covenant with us. It was not because of their good works that God chose them to be his people. It was his grace. It was his mercy. They deserved wrath, the wrath of God just like us. But because God covenanted with them, they received mercy, rescue, and preservation. We have done nothing to make God love us. That is not something we can do. If it were not for the Lord, we would have never chosen him unless he first chose us. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. The meta this metaphor is slightly different. Because now Israel is, is being compared to a bird getting out of a trap. Pay attention to the climax of this verse. It says that the snare has been broken and we have been escaped. So based upon everything we have discussed thus far in this passage, who broke the snare? Who broke the trap? God did. He set his people free. So oftentimes we paint the story of our lives as if we're all big and bad and tough. But do you see the imagery here? Israel is being compared to a helpless, defensive little bird, and that's us. See, we're in no position to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. We would not be saved unless somebody acted on our behalf. That's what's causing the Israelites to worship in Psalm 124. The psalmist says, escaped twice he's excited we have been set free we have escaped we have escaped like a bird the snare is broken i can almost picture this like a call and response in a worship service where the leader says we have escaped like a bird and the congregation says the snare of the fowlers we have escaped 
oh, can you put yourself here? You know, one of the reasons I think we don't sing loudly on Sunday mornings is because we have forgotten where we have come from. That if it were not for the Lord, we would have been condemned. That if it were not for the Lord who acted acted on our behalf when we were dead in our sins and trespasses, helpless to save ourselves, under the just condemnation of a holy and righteous God, that if he would have not acted on our behalf, we would have been utterly wiped off the earth and God would have been right for doing it. We've forgotten where we've come from. We've forgotten what Christ has accomplished. Because notice what the response is in the song. They are reflecting back on what could have been. They're remembering their history. They're remembering what the Lord has done. Most of us can't even reflect long enough on our personal history because we're not allowing the Lord to deal with stuff probably. We can't reflect far enough back in the history of the church, what, the, what, what God has done over the centuries after the Bible, preserving his church. We're here because people have gone before us. What would we be apart from the Lord acting on our behalf? We'd be dead in our trespasses and sins and straight, heading straight to hell. But the Lord did act on our behalf, faith family. If he didn't act on our behalf, we would still be enslaved to our sin. We would be trapped in our sin unless the Lord sets us free. Listen, I don't know if anyone in here is under any sort of suspicion that that you can set yourself free from your sin. You can't. And any time you begin to think you can, it's an illusion. You think you're building a ladder to get out of a hole, but you've really got a shovel in your hand. You're digging it deeper. The Lord sets free. You don't. Your friends that send you good vibes, they're not setting you free either. People's good thoughts aren't setting you free. You living in secret, not allowing other people to know you, is actually hurting you. Point. You're not the answer. You can't save yourself. And some of us are so daggone prideful that we can't admit that. If it, not had been for, if it had not been for the Lord, Israel would have been swallowed up and washed away. And if it had not been for the Lord, for those of us who claim his name this morning, we would be crushed under his wrath. So why can't you sing? If this is the truth of God's word, why can't you sing? I didn't ask, can you sing good? So can, why can't you sing? My... Um, I've been intentionally leading my missional community to sing more, and that's been fun, which means I have to lead in my really bad singing. And I won't, get, I won't do what Donnie does, <laughs> start singing, because um, you don't want that. He's better than me. But one of the things I said is I said, hey, we'll all sound better if you get closer and sing louder. I'm real tempted to say everybody get up and move forward. I'm not going to do that. But I would encourage us to sing louder. Notice what their response is. They are reflecting back on what could have been, and it's prompting them to sing. So why can't we? If this is the truth of God's word, why can't we sing? If, this is, if that's true of us, why are we not singing? So after all of this, again, Israel, they're, they're singing. Verse 8, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
And as we read this with new covenant eyes, knowing our Messiah by name, those of us that have passed from death to life, those of us like the Israelites who were helpless to save ourselves, can we not now say with outstretched arms, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Life is difficult. Don't, we don't have answers to everything that we do. But could you have imagined what it would look like to go through living this life as if the God of the Bible does not exist? But you know, here's the frustrating thing. A lot of us do that anyway. You, you understand? Like, we're functional atheists at times. Meaning, you come here, you say, I love the Lord. You say you're a Christian, but then you live the rest of your life as if he doesn't exist. You're a functional atheist. You, you are a, you, you're a Christian in name only, which is foreign to the Bible. Okay? So you, uh, the Christian in name. There, there's no dichotomy here. A Christian is a regenerate, born-again child of God. Not perfect, but still born again. But we live as if he doesn't exist because we structure our lives in such a way where we are so safe and we are so insulated that we, live, that we don't need him. And I'm telling you, if we don't get back to some of this exilic mindset, we're going to be, I'm not trying to prophesy or anything, but there, there's some stuff coming. That we're going to have to, to get back to, who, where is my help? Like, like is, if someone were to have your life in front of them, would there be enough evidence to convict you of actually believing Jesus is Lord? But the beauty of this is that God preserves his people. So as we conclude our time this morning, I need us to have solidified in our hearts and minds that those of us God saves, he preserves. Like, I need us to hear that. Those that God saves, God preserves. Or in the old-fashioned Baptist language, once saved, always saved doesn't lose any that the Father has given him. None of them. He will preserve the church. The Israelites were not destroyed because of their strength. Excuse me, they were, they, they were, they were not saved because of their strength, but because of God's grace and preservation. The church will not be destroyed for the same reason, for God's grace and preservation. So as we journey through life, both individually and God willing, corporately, we are going to experience things that are going to cause us to doubt, cause us to struggle. But the Bible is abundantly clear that it has not, uh, if it has not been clear so far, just in our passage this morning, but the Bible says in Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say once you hit the sin meter and made the bell go off and now you lose your salvation. No, there's no qualifications here. He who began a good work in you will bring it. Because he, he's the one that can bring it to completion. He's the one that has the ability to see it through. If we were left to ourselves, we would never see it through. See, this is real easy to understand that whatever God begins, he finishes. He's not like a terrible construction company. Who begins building a house but then stops. No, when he begins building something, he finishes the building. He's working on something in all of our lives that make up this beautiful building of the church. He's the master architect, and you can't bring anything to completion if you don't preserve it. And again, God is preserving his church. Now, I can hear some of the pessimists in this room who struggle with this doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. 
You might say things like, well, well, yeah, that promise is only true for those who don't walk away from the faith. But I would emphatically say that that is a misunderstanding of what the Apostle Paul is communicating. And again, this is very simple. Paul is confident that God will not let you walk away. He won't let you. There have been times in my life where I felt like my faith is gone. It's not there. I want to give up. I want to stop trying to do this Christian thing. I can't do it because I knew I was trying to do it in my own strength. But listen, I, I can't, it, God preserved my faith. I, ne- I couldn't give up. Like that's the only way I could describe it. I could not give up. He wouldn't let me. He's preserving his people. Most of us, many of us have experienced this. So I keep saying his people, so I want to make sure we understand what I mean. I'm not saying church attenders, though you should come to church. I'm talking about those who are born again. I'm talking about those who are a part of both the invisible and the visible church. I'm talking about those who have received the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about John chapter 3, born again, transformed Christians. We have a new nature, new focal point, new reorientation in their life. The Israelites didn't fail. Why? Because he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. Jude, verses 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty dominion and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. I want to end here discussing Jude. Why? Because the language used in Jude is very similar from what we see in the other Psalms of Ascent that we've already gone through. Psalm 121, verses 3 through 8. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. One author says this, to properly understand the word keep, which is more literally translated guard, we must look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. This is an issue of God's faithfulness. Continuing the quote. This is an issue of God's faithfulness as much as his power. Listen. So if you're in here like, I don't really know if God, I really believe someone that can be legitimately saved and then lose their salvation. Like, Just think about this, okay? This is an issue of God's faithfulness as much as his power. So if you're saying, no, I believe you can lose your salvation, you, you are challenging God's faithfulness and his power. So you just, again, just sit on it, ponder it. It's a matter of character, God's character. His integrity is at stake in his guarding of you. If he were to lose so much as one blood-bought child, both his faithfulness and his power would be suspect. The fact that we don't stumble isn't because we are especially noble or strong or committed, but because God is. I love that. The fact that we don't stumble isn't because we are especially noble or more spiritual than the next person, or noble or strong or committed, but because God 
is, left to ourselves, we are hopeless and helpless, end quote. By a guy named Sam Storms, who wrote a phenomenal book on assurance of salvation. So as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper, can we begin reflecting that the Lord had not been our si- on our side, where would we be? Where would we be? That as we come to hold the symbols of Jesus' body and blood, we would be reminded that every time we were tempted to make it without him, we are forgiven. That every time we believe the purpose of the Lord, the purpose of the Lord would fail, we are forgiven. That every time that we believed our faith is failing and we are doubting God's ability to preserve our faith, we are forgiven and we are holding signs and symbols that say, I will never let you go. <laughs> you're, you're holding the symbols of my body and my blood. This, this whole covenant is sealed with my blood and for him to lose you is for him to be a terrible God because he doesn't waste his blood. He's holding us, church. He's preserving us, church. Like, can we say our help? Like, imagine when we hold the elements, our help is in the name of the Lord. I am broken and failed, but I, but I hold these, these symbols that remind me I'm forgiven. I, sin describes me, it doesn't define me. I'm forgiven. That the Lord's Supper is a means of grace by which God has given us to preserve our faith. So faith family, if you would please stand as we prepare our hearts. Families with unbaptized children, I would encourage you again, please do not waste this time to instruct your children on what we are doing. That as they are not participating in the Lord's Supper, that you would continue to remind them why. Why they are not a part of this time together. And as always, don't waste this time to pray with your children um, as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. So we will pray, and then we will exit out toward the walls, come back to our tables, go back to our seats. We will participate together. So let's, let us go now before the Lord, confessing our sins and rejoicing at the same time.